Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. Um, now, uh, James, uh, who are we talking to today? Well... It's Holocaust Memorial Day, and so we've got an incredibly special guest today, Inga Auerbacher, who was born in the Schwarzwald, or very near the Schwarzwald, um, the uh, Black Forest in southern Germany, with her Jewish family, and she was a victim of the Holocaust. And she and her family, immediate family, were sent to Theresienstadt, also known as Terezin, um, uh, a concentration camp that I have been to and have been appalled by, I have to say. Um, and many of her family's um, family members also were packed off to Auschwitz, and that was where they met their end. But amazingly, Inga and both her parents survived, as did her doll. Um, and um, she's been an amazing spokesperson, I should say, for the experience of the Holocaust, making sure that we don't forget it, but also talking about healing as well and, and about bringing people together. So, Inger, it's just fantastic. You know, you and I have been kind of emailing each other back and forth for about 18 months, two years or something. So finally we get to see each other, albeit via via our computers. But but welcome and thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much. And I send you regards from Yankee land, <laughs> New York City. Yeah, amazing. So it's an amazing pleasure to finally meet you even this way. We're even closer than if I would be in person there. I see you right in front of me. So that's one good thing. Inga, you were you were born in Germany um, uh, and your family were Germans. Your father had fought for the German army in the First World War. When you when you were being singled out for being Jewish, um, was it a, a, a shock? Was it a revelation that you were not Germans? Was it a a shock to you or was it something you, your family had been worrying about? No, we, I, I mean, first of all, I am Jewish. Yeah. Secondly, I was German. Yeah. We were always Jewish. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I come from a modern Orthodox family. And uh, yes, we were uh, Germans. I mean, we, that was the country. It was our country. We fought for it. My yeah. father was a soldier in World War I, was wounded, and received the Iron Cross. Now, my grandmother was one out of 14 children. She had four brothers in World War I. 
Gosh. Two died for Germany. But we always considered ourselves Jewish first. Right. Okay. How old were you um, when uh, the, the Nazi regime started to really uh, persecute Jews? How old were you at Christ- when Kristallnacht occurred? I was not even four years old. And I have to include something. I was born at home and the doctor who delivered me belonged to the Nazi party. And my mother was very sick for nine months. And he would come. Usually you would have a midwife to deliver in the village. It's a very small village, Kippenheim in southwestern Germany at the foot of the Black Forest. But my mother was very sick for nine months and the doctor had to be sent. And many times he came to her wearing his Nazi uniform. But it was a strange thing. He still treated the Jewish people with respect. I mean, he was a good friend. Later on, he did some terrible things, probably euthanasia, where you kill people with mental, physical problems. And he was in prison for many years. I never saw him again. But I cannot say he was not a bad uh, person when uh, we knew him. I was not even four years old during Crystal Night, uh, which is November 9th and 10th, the first major riot in Germany, Austria, and some parts of Bohemia. That was in modern times. And I remember it crystal uh, crystal clear. Absolutely. Amazing. And can you remember, was there, I mean, you, you know, you were so young then, but was there a, can you sense mounting... Fear, worry, anxiety uh, in your parents at that time? You know, there were always rumblings against us. We knew uh, we weren't 100% welcome in Germany. But um, my father always said, look, I was a, I'm a disabled war veteran. I have the Iron Cross. Nothing is going to happen to us. That Hitler, that crazy guy, he'll go away. The Germans are too intelligent to uh, permit such a person to rise to power. But boy, were we wrong. And and what was, I mean, what was Kippenheim like at the time? It, it was a little village, 2,000 people, yep. over 1,000 years old. I mean, Americans, they you know, we are here a few hundred years old here, except for the Indians who lived here before. But to think of a a village over a thousand years old, it's very hard to think about it. Um, And we lived, Jewish people lived in that village way over 300 years. We were incorporated in the village. I mean, uh, the Christians went to their church on Sunday and we went on Saturday. That was the difference. We fought in all the wars, everything, German citizens. But there was always that little tension. Uh, between Christians and Jewish people. You felt it. I mean, I was very young and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents a few hundred miles away where they were the only Jewish family left in that little village of about a thousand people. Right. And at one time it was 40% Jewish. Now that is uh, rare in Germany. Remember that only about a half a million Jews lived in Germany, not millions, but not that many. And um, yeah, my father, you know, people started to think maybe we should leave after Crystal Night, which was terrible. Would you like me to tell you a little bit about Crystal Night? 
Well, yeah. yes, if, if, if you can, yeah. Yes, I can. My memory is cl crystal clear, as we would say. I remember it was uh, uh, my grandfather went to the, they visited us. They came uh, many times from a little village called Jedenhausen, which is part of Gürpingen, a bigger city. I mean, a bigger, it's maybe 50,000 people. Mine, Kippenheim was 2,000 and 60 Jewish families. And we lived next to each other. And we had a beautiful synagogue. But I remember that they really crystal clear. Grandpa went to the synagogue in the morning to say his morning prayers. And then there was a knock on the door. My father wanted to go later. And he was arrested as well as my um, grandfather in the your, synagogue. Your father was arrested. My grandfather too. He, yeah, they, wow. he, he was arrested in the synagogue away yeah. from his prayers. And both of them were sent to the Daha concentration camp. Right. All men and boys on November 9th and 10th were sent to concentration camp in Germany, Austria, etc. And um, from the age of 16 on, not the women and not the children. So there were only women and children left. And then uh, we didn't know where they were going. They have no, had no idea. We never were used to something like that. By us, it happened November 10th. And then all our windows in our large house, very large house, about 18 rooms were broken. Every single and one. Every, yeah, every, just the ones they could reach. And we were standing in the dining room, and I, I remember when one person said they were, later on they said, oh no, there weren't people from Kippenham, there were some rowdies from other villages, who knows? And one of them saw that the chandelier is still hanging. He said, oh, we got to get that one. And I was just standing, a little girl, and uh, they threw a rock through the broken window, and my mother just pulled me away. Otherwise, I would have been dead on the spot. There was glass all over the place. Oh then we were hiding in the neighborhood. Uh, well, in our house, actually, we had a courtyard in the, uh, and there was a shed. And we, we were hiding there all day. They were kept on banging at the huge door. We had a very large house. And after, uh, and then, um, of course, they uh, desecrated the synagogue, which was very near us. And they pulled out the Torah rolls, ripped them up. You know, that's, uh, those are rolls that handwritten on parchment. Our holiest, uh, it's the first, uh, uh, you know, the Old Testament is written on. It's very important to us that Torah means everything like a human being. When it's desecrated, you have to bury it like a human being. They ripped everything up, desecrated, ripped the whole inside of the beautiful synagogue. Most of the synagogues were burned to the ground, but we had Christian uh, houses very nearby, and they would have been burned to the ground as well. So they stopped that, but desecrated the whole building. And we had to board up our uh, windows. We had to pay for the damage, and some weeks Later, uh, they came home again. They permitted them to come home again. 
And this is your grandfather and your father? Both. In fact, there's a little story that I remember that dad told us, you know, we are not supposed to eat pork and things like that. There's certain rules that Jewish people don't eat. It's pretty difficult to keep all the lost. And, and my father told the story that grandpa was quite religious. He said, oh, you know, his son-in-law was with him. In fact, they had birthday on the same day, June 13th. And he said, I can't eat this stuff. They were hungry. But it's not kosher, can you imagine, in this horrible place? He's worried about his religion. And that's the kind of person, you know, you believe in your religion, you want to do the best. He said, you better eat what you get. And he told the story, they had to wear those blue and white striped prison uniforms there in Dachau. And uh, no underwear, nothing was freezing cold yeah. for hours. And if somebody wanted to blow their nose, they were hosed down with ice cold water. And that happened to my father. And they said to him, oh, you can throw away your iron cross. You know, it's an, an honor to get a, uh, an iron cross. He was mm. wounded quite badly on his right shoulder. And um, it, it was, uh, you know, then he realized, you know, as soon as we get out, if we get out, we have to get out of this country. But before he, he just, uh, he couldn't grasp that, that it could get so bad. And then he came back. But you didn't get out of the country, did you? I mean, you know, you got. No, no. we tried to get visas. It was impossible. We tried America and they wanted a sponsor, a higher sponsor. My uncle, my mother's brother had been to America before. My aunt had, uh, his wife, had some relatives in uh, America. He was the butcher, did, did very well in America in New York. And they got out and they were trying to get us out. But since my father was a disabled war but I mean, he could work. He was uh, a merchant, textile merchant before. But you know, America at that time was very difficult. The quota systems for Germans, was you know very low and you couldn't and go to france or, or britain or anywhere no no you see people live we live very close to france Alsace yeah. is right next door right. yeah i know i mean you could practically my father did apprenticeship in Strasbourg, Alsace. he used to come home he told me on a bicycle you know it was the rhine separates france or Alsace at that time uh, with Germany, but the borders were all closed. You couldn't. Get, we were ne very near to Basel, mm -hmm. Strasbourg. Everything was closed. You couldn't do it. And uh, so they wanted a higher uh, amount uh, for the visa and all that. That we will not become burdens to America. Well, it, it no, it didn't work out. Let's put it this way. How long was he in Dachau for then? A few weeks. Actually, there was a story why my mother got him out. She bought some bogus ticket to some Central American country. It was a bogus ticket. And she got him out. But at that time, uh, most of the people uh, got out. It, it's like, now we show you what we're going to do to you. Get out. The Nazis thought that way. Yeah. But made it, but then paradoxically made it very difficult to get out too. So, so you 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 were you were stuck basically. We were stuck. We yeah. were absolutely stuck. But who could think in their right mind what they really had in mind? I mean, the Germans are intelligent people. I go to Germany very often, and they're not bad people. Now we have this whole 
raising of uh, anti-Semitism again, which is horrible in the whole world. I can't believe what is happening again in our country too here in America. Oh, it's been, it's been really, really shocking. I remember, you know, I remember talking to yes. someone sort of 10 years ago about it and, you know, and people were talking about anti-Semitism and was absolutely none in the UK at all. There's just there's nothing in Britain. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, it kind of, I know. it raised its well, head the, again. The Jew has always been the canary in the coal mine. It starts with the Jew. You have to blame somebody, you know. When things go wrong, the economy or whatever it is, even diseases, whatever. Blame the Jew. They are at fault. And that has been going on for thousands of years. A lot of people assumed that after the Holocaust, that would be the end of the matter, wouldn't it? You know, finally, you know, you, you've seen this to this, you know, but it hasn't been the case. So no, it, it just look, what is it? 76 years now? Yeah. And it's starting all over. Who would dream of such a thing? Yeah, I Nobody. Agree. I mean, here in where I live in New York, I live in the borough of Queens. I live in the row house, and Queens is the most diverse place in the whole country, the U.S. My next-door neighbor is Hindu from British Guyana. Right. It's Guyana today. They separate from your country. And, and quite religious people. On the other side is a family, a Muslim family, devout, from Bangladesh. And then there is a Christian family. So four religions, the basic religions of the world, live in peace together next to each other. We are great neighbors, great neighbors. Well, that's how it should and, be. Yes, but you have to, you know what it is? You have to get to know each other. That is number one. And yeah. education yeah, of course. has to be studied in school. Look, under God, we're all the same. We're all God's children, no matter what color, race, whatever yeah, can't well, argue with that so so but going back to going back to the kind of the the late 1930s and the start of the war and and you know so you're your family is in an invidious situation you you know jews are being ever more persecuted and and made to feel outsiders and and cast out and you can't right. do anything about it i mean do you remember as a child that sort of growing sense of kind of something awful is happening here yes i mean after this crystal night my father said we got to get out some way so we sold the house big house and moved in with my grandparents a few hundred kilometers away hoping that just waiting that we can get out somewhere somewhere and this little village uh, had only one Jewish family left, my grandparents. And I will say, this little village of Jebenhausen, incorporated in Göppingen, the people, for the most part, treated us with respect. It was, I had only Christian children to play with. In fact, my last girlfriend just died. They treated me very well. I was one of theirs, and uh, I didn't have much trouble. But then... Um, the uh, I had to go to school. I'm six years old. I had to go to a Jewish school. I was not allowed to go to the school in that little village. And I had to get permission to go to that school in Stuttgart for the whole state of Württemberg. Today it's called Württemberg Baden, Baden-Württemberg. And in the beginning, my father took me first with a bicycle to the train station because we were not allowed to use the buses. In the winter, we used a sled. We used to hang on to a sled that some farmer uh, had. And um, school, 
uh, stopped after six months. I never finished my first grade. In fact, in my life, I lost eight years of schooling, eight altogether, with the camp and sickness after the war, very bad sickness. My parents had to do some slave labor in a factory. And then in 1941, the transports began. And we were in a transport to go to Riga in Latvia. So were my, oh my goodness. was my grandmother. And that place was absolutely terrible because a lot of the people uh, were killed in the forest, which I visited, by the way. So you're, you, you, were separ- you and your parents were separated from your grandparents at this point? No, we were all together still. Oh, okay. We were all together. And once the, uh, the school stopped after six months, but I knew how to read, write, and do a little math. This was an entire Jewish school for the whole state of Württemberg. All the Jewish kids had to go there. But after six months, it closed and uh, the transports began. We had to leave the house that was owned by my grandmother and moved into the bigger city, Gerping, into Jewish houses, segregation. Uh, somehow we got out of that transport to Riga and uh, uh, in Baden, where I was born, all the Jews had we still lived in and didn't leave in 1939. They were all sent to a camp called Gurs in France, up in the Pyrenees, border of Spain and France, all, all the way up there. Every single Jew in that home state was sent there. So we were still free at that time. And that happened in, in 1940. That was Judenrein, free of Jews, state of Baden. But uh, by in Württemberg, it was still uh, a little slower. And then um, the uh, transports began. In 1942, we were, I mean, they began in 41, a few months later. My father wrote actually a letter to the Gestapo. He's a disabled war veteran, because we had the numbers to go to uh, transport to Riga in Latvia. It's very far away. And um, so we got out of that when I still have that letter, believe it or not. And then, but we were in the transport in 1942, over a thousand people. And I was the youngest in that transport to Terrace. And we didn't even know where we were going. And my number was Roman numeral 13-1. Dash 408. And you won't believe it. I have so many fans, you know, because of my book, I'm a star. One girl had a tattoo made on her body just now with my number on it. And she had a (laughs) butterfly. The butterfly became the symbol of the murdered children. So, yeah, it's amazing. I told her, please don't do it. But her mother went with her. She told me. So it's a, she took a picture. Extraordinary. But when you you were, I mean, but by this stage, by the time you're kind of put on a transport, presumably this is a train. It was actually still a regular train from Stuttgart, but we could not leave it. No. And the stormtroopers were on the train with us. And it took about close to two days to get to. But but can you remember, I mean, it must have been terrifying for you. I mean, everything is sort of, you know, you you, you start off your life in this beautiful village in the Black Forest, which is an absolutely gorgeous part of the world, in a lovely, great big house with loving family and everything's all fine. And slowly, bit by bit, this is being stripped away from you. Well, I can say I was a little lucky that I was at that time with my parents. And I felt, well, as long as I have my parents, they will take good care of me. Okay, so you were were sort of... 
you were quite phlegmatic then, in a way. I was a kid, you know, I was seven years old. I mean, I was the youngest in that whole transport. And out of those over a thousand people, maybe it was close to 1,200, 1,150, whatever, there were only very few who survived, by the way, the three years in Terrace. We arrived in a town actually called Bauschewitz, Bauschewitz, yes. which was a train station because uh, Terrorism didn't have a train station. And they told us to get off, leave everything behind, except a bedroll, a little knapsack, and I had my doll. I was not going to give my doll. <laughs> and before, by the way, before we, on the, we were uh, sent away, we had to gather in, in the school gymnasium, and um, they opened everything. That's really very important. And here I'm this little girl. I wanted to take one thing with me besides my doll, a little brooch, a little Dutch boy pin. And one of the guards ripped it off me like I was nothing. You won't need this where you're going in German. Du brauchst das nicht, wo du hingehst in the Swabian dialect. Ripped it off me. And then he saw my doll in my arms. And he ripped her from me. And he looked inside her hollow body. It's very important in my story because she means everything to me. It was a gift for my grandmother when I was two years old. And uh, he gave me back the doll I made of us. He looked inside a hollow body. She was uh, made out of cellulose. I gave, I got her when I was two years old, and I named her Marlene after Marlene Dietrich because she had blue eyes. And she was, you know, that sexy symbol. Yeah, yeah. Love movie star. So I looked at her album. I said, "Who's that lady? That's Marlene Dietrich, very famous uh, actress at that time." I said, "I want to name my Dolly." But then I found out years later, it's very interesting. She was made for the 1936 Olympics, the Hitler Olympics in Berlin. The model's name was Inga. My name was no. Yes, it really happened. We made a film, the Olympic doll. She had blue eyes, blonde hair, not really, uh, you know, cellulose, you know, and uh, I never. I went to the factory uh, and I got a new because I gave the actual doll. I she was not in such great shape anymore to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. I, we went to the uh, to the uh, factory, still there, and they make the Inga doll. So originally, she sent me a doll to America with brown eyes. I said no. She had blue eyes. She thought every Jewish girl has brown eyes dark hair well my mother was blonde and she had gray eyes so there you go you know these (laughs) stereotypes all jews have this long noses i don't think i have a long nose (laughs) and yes i was dark but my mother was blonde so anyway we made a film about the olympic doll so she was a german uh, doll in the in the arms of a jewish girl how amazing we're going to take a short break now. We're talking to Inga Arbacher. Welcome back to We Have Ways to Make You Talk. We're talking to Inga Arbacher. And how did you survive in, in Tarazin? Well, when we arrived, we had to walk about two kilometers from Bolshevitz to Tarazin or Theresienstadt, it was a place where, you know, it was a fortress town built by Emperor Joseph II Mm. in memory of his mother, Teresa. And uh, it was a town very dilapidated. 
it was an actual town with barracks, uh, big barracks, uh, huge ones. And um, they had at one time about 60,000 people living there. It had two parts, actually, the big fortress where I was and the small, which was a prison for the prison. It was always a prison. And even the man who started World War One, Princip. Yes, he was there, wasn't he? Was yeah. Prison there in, in, in I think, uh, room number, uh, you know, cell number one. And he died there of tuberculosis, I believe. But anyway, and they took away everything except the metal dishes. And I had my doll in my arm and they were whipping us. And, uh, you know, and my parents put me between them to not to get the blows. And then we were sent to the attic, huge barrack, the Dresden barrack. And on the floor, nothing. It was just such a shock. You have nothing. You're lying on the bare floor, only a blanket. And then um, some lady, a Czech lady said, is there a child in the trench? I said, yes, Inga, seven years old. And she put me into a room with other children uh, to sleep on the floor. She gave me a little piece of her, a part of a mattress. And then I got uh, sick with scarlet fever. There was a big epidemic uh, of scarlet fever. All the children got it. In the meantime, my parents were sent to an area where all the disabled war veterans were sent. Terrorism was a place where you have the intelligentsia of Europe yeah. and highly decorated war veterans. So that's why we were sent there. But and, you are, uh, but you are um, separated from your parents. I was separate when I was in the hospital. I couldn't see them at all. And that was from, uh, we went there in August. So maybe by September, I was permitted to go. The conditions in the hospital, it was really a room just where you set up the kids, the beds. Two children in every bed. And my partner was a little baby from Luxembourg. And the bed was always wet. And I, you know, you couldn't help. I mean, we had tremendous uh, doctors and nurses, but what could they do? No medicine, you know, very little medicine. Mm. And so by that time, I had lice in my hair and boils on my body. I was in terrible shape. But I came to my parents in this very crowded area. At first, there were 40 people in the room, at least 40, side by side, double-deck bunk beds. Then we were in a tiny, tiny room with a family from Berlin. And they had a, they, the father was also a disabled war veteran. It was... Uh, and, and this girl's name was Ruth. She was actually half Jewish, whatever you call that. The father was half Jewish, the mother totally, and she was brought up as a devout Christian. And in 44, when all the transports left after the um, inspection by the International Red Cross chose that place, that's why they called it a model ghetto, dash concentration camp, because once the International Cross was permitted to come in only because they remodeled the whole, like a stage setting, you know, children yeah. were given sandwiches. It's a well known fact and there's a film about it. When you see the film, the Führer gives the uh, Jews a, a city. It was all bogus. And as soon as they were away, almost everybody was deported to Auschwitz. I mean, there were constant transports anyway. We had about 140,000 people in Paris. And uh, also very famous musicians, they all were killed. Very famous people came there. 
intelligent, you know, intelligentsia of Europe was sent there. And uh, constantly they were sent away. I mean, Terezin was a holding area, just like when you mm. slaughter animals like cows or whatever, you keep them in the corral for a while and then you kill them. And that was the place. But we didn't know about it. We had no clue what Auschwitz was, only at the end of the war. It was called to the East and we knew that the East could be even worse. What is awaiting us there? But Inga, and, what happened? To, what had happened to your grandparents in the meantime? Well, my grandfather died soon after uh, the how he had a weak heart, and that finished him off. My grandmother was sent to to um, to Latvia, to Riga. Never heard from her again. I'm trying to find. Did she die in the ghetto there or was she killed? But I knew people from the travel. She said she went to the forest and I went to that forest. Unbelievable. It, it just, to me, I saw all the camps. I went back uh, to all of them with tours. You know, I was speaking on the tours. Right. But that place, the forest with the mass graves, at least around 50, I couldn't walk past the third one. No, I'm sure. All cement around it and I, I just... And for all intents and purposes, I should have been in one of those mass graves. Eichmann, who was in charge of the whole, um, you know, killing the Jews, was in Terezin sometimes. And I know he was there because I know a woman who met him. Actually, she worked as a telephone operator for the Germans. And she we have, we have a film about that. So she says the whole story. Yes, of course. I ate lunch with him in a beautiful place outside the camp. And I most likely saw her because I remember seeing three, four SS men. You could only see their black boots. You weren't supposed to look at them. I can't tell you what he looked like, but I know I'm pretty sure he was one of these people. There were constant transports and selections. One of the last one was after the International Red Cross. Now, I don't understand how they can only look a little area that they showed him. Not to ask, how are you living here? Nothing, nothing. Only a certain area was shown. And they gave the children. I have a friend who was given sardine sandwiches, and they had to say the last commandant was Ram. And they had to say, uncle, uncle Ram, like he's an uncle, right? A wonderful uncle. And to say, Uncle Arm, oh, we don't want any more sardine sandwich. We have enough of them. They ate them down so quickly, they had to replenish. They put up this farce, a coffee shop, nothing existed, you know, real coffee and all that. I mean, we were hungry all the time. I really appreciate food. And um, <laughs> in the morning, you went with uh, your little metal can to get coffee which wasn't really i was standing online for all three meals uh it was some black liquid some imitation it tasted off or use it to whatever clothes we still had or got from what they took from the other people that they didn't want to send to berlin you cleaned the clothes with this it was almost like a detergent for lunch you got maybe some uh, uh you know parsnip you know some what do you call those uh some kind of root yeah, vegetable or something. Like a turnip. Yeah, turnip. Turnip. Turnips. Yeah. Not much. And it was like the only vegetable, a potato. Potato was like diamonds for us, like diamonds. I mm. wrote a poem about that in my book, I'm a Star, by the way. Here's the book. It has a different meaning, I can tell you. I'm turning, I'm a positive person, and I'm turning this I can yellow tell. star that we had to wear 
in something positive that you, to me, every human being is a star. Well, anyhow, to get back to the food, at night again, the same thing. You had to stand in line. We got maybe one uh, food, uh, one uh, bread delivery, not really good bread, once a week. And my mother used to cut in Monday to Tuesday and so forth. If you were in the next day's portion, you, uh, you had no bread. And food was the most important thing in, in, in the whole place because you, you had to survive. Yeah, I can imagine. But anyway, you you are absolutely you're, you're in a kind of a in a building with your in a hut with your. Well, it was a building, uh, an old building. Because uh, they're, they're all these sort of barrack blocks, aren't they? Like, not in the beginning. We were on the floor in the attic of the Dresden barrack. Right. right. And it's dilapidated now. In fact, I just saw a film on it. It's breaking all apart. A huge barrack, huge. Yeah. I mean, it's like a whole block long. And uh, so we were in this tiny room. You couldn't move around. Double deck bunk beds. We were on top. My girlfriend, Abra uh, Ruth Abraham, was uh, with uh, her mother and father on the first tier. And uh, we had no chair. Your little place in, in, in that bed was your home. That was it. No table, nothing. You ate there, you slept there, everything. And it was always on our mind. When will the next transport go to the east? We were right. fearful of that. Right. That was, you you, we, you felt the clock was ticking that, that any oh, day the clock was you. absolutely ticking and a lot of people lost hope. I know I knew some people who committed suicide. Even on the first few days when I was there, there was really? we had a lot of old people in that transport. My father saw one of them, a man, older man, hanging out the dormer window. He said to him, Don't do it. We'll get out of this. Have hope. Have hope. He promised, and next morning he laid that in the courtyard. Now, our games, I'm always being asked, what did your kids do? We had children there. I mean, children do play with each other. Yeah. We went to the garbage dump trying to find some uh, potato peelings. You know, we still could cut off a little bit, a string, a piece of paper, uh, some rotten turnip. We could still take a little off. Some uh, we never saw a piece of meat. Never. They used some horse meat uh, for who knows for a thousand people, whatever. And some and some of the bones still had a little grizzle. And my father used to go and find those bones and cut off a little grizzle. That's the only food I had. So when we think today, we're in a pandemic. People are complaining. Oh, we can't go out. I said, you have food on the table. You have a roof over your head, a warm bed. What are you complaining about? Yeah, yeah. It will go away. Have hope. It'll go away. We'll take our vaccines and hopefully it will will be okay again. This, I mean, I'm used to conditions like that, except now I have all the food I want. I can watch. I can talk to you with Zoom. <laughs> I can. I have my iPhone. I mean, I have a radio. I have television. I mean... You know, I don't know. People are really sissies, I tell you. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, what is that? Yeah, we can see people, and I'm supposed to be also yeah, now in the UK, and I couldn't make it, so we're doing it this way. So, Inga, you know? uh, how did you... I mean, you're amazed by your positivity and your and your spirit that's 
clearly indomitable. How did you keep your hopes up? You said your father said, you know, keep your hopes up. Well, how do you do that in this circumstance? Because because it, it you know, the, the, every day must be the same, but well, also with people being uh, removed to be taken east. How do you keep your um, spirits well, up? Well, and that wasn't even the whole story. After the war, when we came to America, I had uh, in the camp already, you know, from the malnutrition, I got tuberculosis and I was a very strong girl, very strong. And that was something, I was so desperately sick that hope really came into being even, you know, there I had my parents, I mean, most of the time, but I was very near death. I was two years in the hospital, couldn't go to school, nothing, very, very sick, the sickest child on this public hospital where I was on the ward. I was on the ward. This is very important. It wasn't over when it was over. It's not just the camp. There's a second chapter to this, which was very important. I came home finally in Brooklyn. We had a home. I don't want to digress, but this is something. How do you keep hope? I always kept hope. That's when I started to write. I couldn't do anything else. I was in bed for two years, a bed rest, complete. There was no cure at that time. You lived or you died. And finally, when I came home, I got even worse with hemorrhaging. And I even wrote a poem about death. That's, and here I am by that time, I'm about 14 years old, no school, nothing, never finished my first grade. Then I started high school. Finally, at age 15, the first time I ever really went to school and finished something. I finished in three years instead of one. I'm digressing, I know, but it's important about hope. I always had hope. And I said, what am I going to do? I can't go to school. And then I went to college. And again, the first few weeks, they wanted to see my x-rays. I felt all right. Positive again. Again, two years in bed. Two years at home in bed. And uh, well, a year and a half, and then I came back from, I couldn't continue school. Again, a year in bed, so two extra years. So it's four years in bed altogether. And how do you give yourself hope? Well, it's like now in the pandemic, you got to think of something positive. Thank God I inherited my father's spirit. Well, I was just about to ask that, Inga. Is is that where it came from? (laughs) Because, you you know, as a young child in in terrorism, you, you... You've got to feed off something, haven't you? Of the worst day that I remember, and it happened yeah, November 11, uh, 1943. We were all told there has to be a countout taken. And uh, we all, they knew exactly how many people were there. There were about 140,000 between 41 and 45. Two thirds would be shipped to the killing centers like Auschwitz, uh, close to maybe a third survived. We had 15,000 children and very few. They're all different numbers, how many survived. I would say, to be fair, very few. I I don't want to give a number and say, oh, she lied. I don't like to lie. This is how it was. So we were sent, all of us who were still there, all the time, 30,000, 40,000, into this muddy field, Bolshevitz, neighboring town, surrounded by these ravines like uh, mountains little it was raining our feet sunk into the mud it was uh, the worst day and we were surrounded by these uh, nazi you know soldiers 
um, and, and by, so, by holding their guns and they were pointing at us. They didn't shoot. And the idea probably was that day to either kill us or send us out to Auschwitz. They said people were missing. They knew exactly how many people were there. There were a few escapes, very, very few. And most of them were caught. You couldn't get out. And we were really, I mean, my mother gave up. He was, oh, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. So my father loved, my mother, my father had a nice car. He was one of the first in the village. He taught himself how to drive, so forth. He was kind of a firebrand, you know. He was always, uh, you know, a, a spirit, a hopeful spirit all his life. And he told my mother, don't worry. You're going you're gonna to be in the car again. He said, no way. What, this is it, this is it, what are we going to do? Hope, she had no more hope, but my father gave us hope. And sure enough, late at night, orders came from Berlin, everybody back to the camp, many people died. And I remember there was especially one Nazi SS man, his name was Heindel, he was so brutal. And they were hitting the people, and he hit my mother badly with a rifle butt that day. Uh, you know, they were in different, you, you have to stand in line for different, you know, different groups. And, uh, and one thing they said, men, women, and children separate, and we didn't want to do that. So I hold on, we all held on together. This guy comes and beats my mother very badly. And this is a day I shall never forget, and my father was always... Don't, you know, don't worry. Everything will be good again. And that's how he was. Yeah. And even for me, how do I keep up hope when I can't go to school? I have no friends. Nothing, nothing. I just want to be a normal teen, teenager. I just want to be like the others. Have a boyfriend, go dancing, like everybody else. And I couldn't. So I started to write. I remember they, we had some bedside um, classes. Uh, we were quite sick. We had to stay in bed. So uh, they told us to write an essay about our life. So I wrote about um, my village and so forth. And I didn't say I'm Jewish. I, I went to a, a church. I said a Jewish church or something. I didn't want to even, I was still scared to say I'm Jewish. And there was a minister who, you know, the children sometimes went to church on Sunday with a wheelchair or, you know, they couldn't, were not allowed to do that, but I had nothing. So uh, I went with the kids. <clears throat> I went to a Catholic service and I said, I did my Hebrew prayer. We have a very important prayer, Shema Yisrael. It means God is one, one is God. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Yachot. We shouldn't even say Adonai, the God, and God's abbreviated name. And I said to myself, you can say it here. God hears everything. And that's when I started, you know, especially when I came home. I started to write little poems, so forth, and some of them got published in a little magazine, and, um, a bank magazine, and I was so thrilled. Yeah, maybe I'll be a writer. And then I got interested in music and whatever. But And finally, I got interested. I had a wonderful science teacher, and uh, I, I was good in science. I never, I never knew anything about science, only the teacher came into, to the ward, and she showed us a flower and she said, we have two flowers. 
One we're going to put in the sunlight, and one we could, we're going to put in the closet. And of course, the one in the closet is sunlight died. So that was my first experience with science. And I did work for 38 years as a chemist, medical research and clinical work. I really wanted to be a doctor, medical, because I was around doctors all the time. The man or woman in white became my hero. And I had accepted to Heidelberg University. I was there already. That's amazing. Yes, I did. I mean, I was a little old. I never, it was May 1st, May Day, and they were marching on the street. And I opened, uh, I didn't start yet, but I had a room already. I was accepted. I opened the window and I'm hearing them. This was in the 60s, singing Nazi songs. I said, what? 1968. Yeah, in, in this little village near Heidelberg. And I called up my mother. I said, Mom, they're singing songs. She said, I told you not to go. Listen to your mother. Come home immediately. And I did. I came. Uh, I spent uh, on the way back. I spent one week in London. We had some friends. And I came home. And I stopped wow. and went back to my job. What can you remember of, the, of your liberation from tourism? And, and eventually getting to the States. I mean, how did that happen? Because Well, in the late, um, late May in 1945, all of a sudden you saw pieces of paper uh, floating through the air and burnt paper. And also there were transports coming in <clears throat> from the death marches because the yeah. other camps were liberated earlier. We were probably maybe the last of one of the last on May 8th, 1945. Now Auschwitz, where we have now this commemoration, uh, January 27th, was liberated in January already of 27th. Now we weren't liberated till May 8th. And uh, there was a lot, and these people came in open trucks and, 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 and in terrible conditions with uh, on trains, open trains. I mean, they were in terrible condition. And that's when we found out about Auschwitz and all these other places. We knew it couldn't be better. But, you know, because once you went from Terezin to Auschwitz, it was the end. It was really the end selection, etc. Very few yeah, made sure. And they were in terrible condition. They were weeks on the road coming to us. So, uh, you know, we didn't know about all that. So I'm standing there and they, I said, oh, maybe the people from Riga are coming now. I want to see. I want to meet grandma. Of course, she had been killed years before. And there was nobody left. Some of the family went to Auschwitz, of course. Some were sent to the Lodge ghetto. And from there to gas chambers in, I don't even know, in Poland somewhere. It's assumed it was um, uh, one of the camps, whatever. We don't even know where they were sent. I know they didn't come back, period. They were killed in, in uh, Poland. And of course, uh, I had a Polish girlfriend and uh, she said, no, it was not the Poles who did it. It was, uh, I wrote a book together, long story. Anyway. Uh, it was the Germans. Those were German camps. Helmdorf. That's where they were sent. Some of the Helmdorf, I remember the name, from Lodge. The German Jews, some of them were sent to Helmdorf. But anyway, so, and I remember I was a very inquisitive little girl. By that time, I'm 10. 
And I climbed one. Of course, we were surrounded by barbed wire, uh, wooden fences, and brick brick walls all around the camp. I climbed one of the wooden fences. And as I did to see what's going on, the cars are moving out. There's a lot of noise. All of a sudden, I heard a tremendous explosion. I thought my head was off. I touched my head. They were throwing in hand grenades. We were at the end of the camp. Uh, near the street where it was the end of the camp. And then the Nazis even had a swimming pool right outside, didn't even know it. And nice buildings and, you know, they had a good life outside the walls. And I ran to my parents and they said, look, I was in World War I. I know that they are shooting now, they're throwing in uh, shrapnel, you know, hand grenades, etc. We got to find a place. And we found a cellar, a hole in the ground. And we went down there and somebody had a little candle, a tiny candle. We were rushing down, it was very dark. And the only thing I took with me was a little prayer book my father found in the garbage. And it belonged to a person, his name was, and he was from Nuremberg, probably a, a prayer book that a soldier would have, a Jewish soldier. And he probably threw it out. Either he didn't believe in God anymore or he didn't want to take it. And I still have that prayer book. I never prayed so hard in my life as on that day sitting in this dark cellar. And I still have that prayer book. I used to keep it with me whenever I travel, but now I'm a little nervous with terrorists and something. And say, oh, she's Jewish. We got to get her. And then uh, it was late at night, late evening. I remember it was maybe eight, nine o'clock. Somebody went up, what's going on? And he said, we're free. We're liberated. The Russians are here. And do you know what I did last year? I found out who the general was who liberated us, his troops. Now there may be a few, but I called up the Holocaust Museum in Washington Who was it? They said Rybalko. So I was invited to speak in Moscow and in St. Petersburg. They were giving this little opera that was done in Terrazin, Brundiba. I I saw it there, but I didn't understand the Czech. I never learned Czech. Maybe a few words, brumbery, potato, important words, naskledano. And I was invited to speak in the Marinsky Theater this year again. So at that time, I made sure that somebody will take me to the grave of this brave general. And I did. And a huge statue. Uh, I mean, they have special ways. It was a tremendous cemetery with all the famous people. Huge. He, He stood there like seven feet tall or eight feet tall. I put flowers on his grave. And somebody from the Jewish community, the chief rabbi I met, He sent a man, you know, we're sort of a little masculine religion that a man should say important prayers. So he said, uh, Tehillah, meaning prayers of thankfulness, a prayer for hope and so forth at his grave. I have pictures of that. And I felt very good. I wanted to relive my life. Also, I went to the grave of President Truman, who permitted the uh, displaced people to come to America. That's the only reason. I mean, we didn't need a visa at that time, and we were permitted to come here. But, I mean, we didn't have that much help either from the Jewish community, unfortunately. I mean, they weren't ready for us. 
I mean, the war had just ended and they were more interested, I think, for the returning soldiers. And I mean, it was, it was a long war and, uh, and here we come, we need help too, but we made it. My parents first got a job as a couple. Uh, she became a mate, my father, a butler. I mean, we had maids in Germany. It didn't matter, you know, money, no matter how, if you get it, uh, you know, uh, with respect, etc. money doesn't, as they say, the money doesn't smell where it comes from. You have to work for it. I'm very much in, in, you know, impressed with that. Yes, you work for your money, no matter how you make it. I mean, not drug selling, obviously. <laughs> Ah, gosh, Inga, the, your your story is quite is quite extraordinary, and how um, positive you are um, to talk to, um, and how undimmed your belief. I, I I don't know in in the good in the good that humanity can have in it. Is, well, um, people always ask me, "Do you forgive the Germans?" I. Forgive, I mean, there's no such thing, forgiveness, whatever. I am friends with many Germans today. I go quite often. I speak to them on Zoom. I did just did one last week. Uh, the people who did the actual killing, the actual killing, I can never forgive. No. But the ones who, you know, weren't involved with that, um, I, first of all, there's a new generation there. And I have many wonderful friends in Germany. And I speak in many German schools because my German is still good. So I, in fact, they gave me two of the highest awards, believe it or not, from the president of Germany, Bundesverdienstkreuz and, and my home state. And I mean, I have good friends there, but will I forgive the actual killers? No, never. I can't. That's for God to do. There's another court up there that knows everything. Now, if I may add one thing here, which is very important, um, you know, I mean, to have TB, it was, it was a death sentence, let's face it. There was no cure at that time, nothing. Either you stayed in bed, many of the children, it was a children's hospital. It had a public hospital. One ward was for TB, infectious disease, one polio. And you know, the vaccine and so forth got rid of that, most of it. But there was nothing for TB, nothing. You lived or you died. You stayed in bed forever. It didn't help. Some people, it helped. But I found out when I came home, I was really still terrible shape. I, and I was near death. And they said, well, we'll have to try something. A new uh, antibiotic came out, streptomycin, which was the first drug ever for this disease that has been around for thousands of years and still is. And that this was tried on me. I was hemorrhaging. I was in terrible shape. I mean, I, I wrote a poem, as I told you, about death. I thought, this is it. And I'm only, what, 13 years old? You know, I'm young. I can't die now. I want to have a boyfriend, too, like everybody else. Teenager, later on. And I found out years later, many years later, who discovered streptomycin? I knew the, I heard of the man, Waxman, and he got the Nobel Prize. But years later, I found through a newspaper article, it was just by chance, it was called, a, it was a Jewish paper, just a dose of God. People who believe in God, 
get well better. Well, to me, I thought, well, it's all right. I mean, you can pray all you want, but you know, you have to get well. I mean, you have to have something. And then on the second page, just one little paragraph, it said, Albert Schatz, um, Professor Emeritus, um, Temple University, co-discoverer of antibiotic streptomycin. I thought, what? Now, Baxman, I never met. I was kind of scared to get in. I, I'm not so scared to speak anymore. I could call, I don't care if I call up President Biden, now the President or Trump or whatever. I'm not afraid to do any of this. But at that time, I was very shy. You know, I didn't have normal life. And I wanted to thank him for giving me my life. But he died in the meantime. And then I heard about this Dr. Schatz, a student of his. And I called up the paper, wrote a letter. I said, I want to get in touch with him. Well, you can't. You have to write to us because we can't give out his address. And he called me up and he told me the whole story. It's a fantastic story. I wrote a book together with him, Finding Dr. Schatz. We have a film on it. But I would like really a Hollywood movie. It's an amazing story. There was sewing involved. And I mean, he saved my life and I actually met him. And that is a very big part of my life to meet. Uh, he died a poor man. I mean, not rich. He got nothing of this. And finally, uh, they honored him, but he deserved the Nobel Prize. He did. He signed the papers with the copyright, you know, this rights business and all the discoveries. And uh, I met him. And you know what it feels like to put your arm around somebody who saved your life? It was a very, it, it was amazing. It was just amazing. So I did this, you know, I met the man who saved my life. I went to President Truman's grave. Now in the meantime, unfortunately, Dr. Schatz died of pancreatic cancer. Very sad story. <clears throat> but we wrote the book. And we have a film, a documentary, very short, you know, uh, homemade kind of thing, but it would be a great story for a Hollywood movie. It really would. And it's sitting with two people, but who knows? Pandemic and who knows what. It's okay. It, the main thing was to thank these people. Even I, him, he was alive, but the others, of course, not. But I felt in my heart, I did what I, you know, you have to be grateful. And somebody does something good for you, especially saving your life. This, the Russians, you know, if I, when I, I'm supposed to go this year and have children sing a song that I wrote together with a friend, A World of Peace, I want peace in this world. I don't want all these politicians doing this, that. We got to live together. We must. Otherwise, we're doomed. Well, we're I doomed. completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. Anyway, it's been a, it's it's been an inspiration to talk to you. Um, I said we were going to chat for about about forty minutes, but here we are, and uh, we've done an hour and uh, nearly an hour and ten. Oh um, it's been I'm great. Sorry, I said so much, but I still no, have a don't last... be silly. Can I give a last message to the of world? Of course you can. Of course, especially to all my new friends in the UK. I'm their lost cousin. <laughs> anyway but we're still good friends Inga, um, thank you so much for talking to us it's been a it's been a, a total pleasure well that was just fantastic thank you Inga thank you very much indeed 